You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bible, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is where uh, we will uh, devote some attention now as our service uh, begins. And, you know, this morning we begin really a three-week emphasis on the Incarnation or the glorious truth of God the Son leaving heaven's throne and becoming a human and living on this earth and, uh, uh, and really tracing the, the coming of King Jesus. Today we focus in on the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament anticipation of the coming King. And what it is that the uh, Israelites of old uh, were expecting as he came next week on Christmas Eve, we'll uh, celebrate really the New Testament announcement of the arrival of this infant king. That was a perfect cue right there. (laughs) And the following week then, as we end the year on December 31st, we will adore the risen, reigning, ruling king, King Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to just journey back to ancient Israel, to journey back to the uh, the days of King David and other scriptures that we'll read along the way in our service this morning, uh, to, to, to step back into their shoes about what it is that they were anticipating about the arrival of Jesus, about this king, about the the Messiah. What was it that the Old Testament built an appetite for so that when Jesus did arrive, they they had these expectations? And I want us to think about this, not in like a conspiracy-driven way, seeing signs in every verse and number and all those things, but putting together the pieces of the Old Testament about what it is that God actually told his people through the prophets and also through the kings. Now, we know some of those details that were literally fulfilled in, in, in Jesus' birth, particularly things, uh, simple uh, but profound details about like where Jesus was born. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem, right? And he told that to the prophet Micah, and then it came about. But when were, were, what were the people, both then in ancient Israel and then in Jesus' day, what were they expecting and were they right in what they were expecting? About de- the things like who God actually is and how he would come and what he would accomplish in his coming and uh, for whom would he come and rescue And that's why we turn to Psalm 24 today for, even though it's not like your typical Christmas passage, it has a significant influence on their anticipation for this coming king. And so hopefully you found uh, Psalm 24. It's there in the middle of your Bible. I want to read it here for us, and then we will explore it more closely together. Follow along and listen here as I read. It's a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is God's word for God's people. And why do we pick this psalm? What does this psalm teach us? Well, it teaches us something very simply, to anticipate the arrival of the king of glory. Write that down. It's here on the screen there in your notes here. It teaches us just it has a very simple central message to anticipate the arrival of the king of glory. And it leaves us asking this question, well, who is this king of glory? Who is this king that we anticipate? Well, David, we learn, is the author. He himself was a king, the second king of Israel after King Saul, the first king. But not only was David a king, he was also himself a great warrior leading God's armies and the armies of Israel in many battles. And he was also a, a songwriter and musician, for which we have many of the psalms attributed to him as, uh, that he has written in response to uh, numerous circumstances throughout his life. This is uh, unattributed to any particular situation, but it is a psalm of, his, uh, of David. And written into these lyrics are a description of the king's authority and his action. Of his authority and his his action without actually fully revealing the identity of this king of glory, for he was yet unknown, only expected. Like a pregnant mother expecting a child yet unknown was ancient Israel awaiting the arrival of her king. How ironic then that he would come as a baby in human form. And so teaching us to anticipate how then, how, how then can we rightly anticipate his arrival? What does the text have to teach us here? How does it show us the way? Well, here in the first two verses, write this down, it teaches us to then acknowledge his sovereign rule as creator. If you want to rightly anticipate his arrival, then acknowledge God's sovereign rule as creator. The first two verses really are written as a statement of fact without any sort of proof or or explanation as to their veracity. Just simply, the Lord rules over all property and people. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in them. He rules over the earth and everything and everyone who occupies it. And not only did he found it and establish it as his word there in Genesis 1, as God speaks and out of nothing it happens. 
It all comes and it is all created by the word of his power out of nothing. Without any sort of materials being mixed together, God speaks and it comes into existence. And now by his command, the seas and the rivers are held back from consuming the earth in additional flood. He founds it upon the seas and establishes it upon the river. See, God is the sovereign ruler and creator over everything. John Piper has this phenomenal quote that he said in multiple places here on the screen. There is not one square inch on planet earth over which the risen Christ does not say mine. And I rule over it. I am supreme over it. End quote. And to this we say amen ourselves, do we not? Or maybe we just stay silent in a reverent awe at his authority at his action. And yet it is not merely just a statement of fact. These are real truths that become practical in the daily moments of our life as we acknowledge his sovereignty and his creation over us. See, at worst, we can live as, as if we are the sovereign rulers of our own life, rejecting the king's authority over everything, or in doubt we question his wisdom and power when things don't go our way. But yet the Lord offers us a better way by acknowledging his sovereign rule over us as our creator. And by acknowledge, I don't just merely mean like a nod of assent, you know, like the bro nod that maybe some of you gave as you saw a friend walking in the door and across the welcome center, you're like, you know, I don't just give Jesus bro nods of acknowledgement, but of ultimately submitting to his rule, trusting his goodness over our life, over our schedules, over the things that we allow to occupy us, especially this uh, Christmas you know, we submit to his rule, we trust his goodness, and we believe that his way is the best, even when our life seems like chaos and a mess. Maybe one of the things that we can do is acknowledging him instead of, of, of looking around at all the Christmas lights and decorations that occupy so many lawns in our community, is to get out and look at his creation and turn our gaze to heaven and see the heavenly host and the stars that occupy his universe every day, not just in the Christmas season. There as we do, as we see the stars, we feel our smallness under the enormity of the heavens, and we feel the cold in the changing seasons. We come to grips with not just the existence of God, but also his authority over our lives, over our schedules, over our thoughts that we live and breathe and have our being just because he created us and now leaves us here. And so we see the statement, we acknowledge his sovereign rule over our life. And as we begin here, we're wondering, maybe like David, as we look at the heavens and we look at the creation and we wonder can we approach this creator this king this lord see the anticipation as we ask that question begins to to build a secondly as, as the t scripture even shows us here as we ascend the hill in holiness See, our anticipation builds as we wonder, can we meet with this god as we see him for who he is and now as we anticipate the coming we are told to ascend the hill 
and holiness. He asks two questions in verse 3 in response to the statement of fact. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Now step back into David's day there in the city of Jerusalem. And understand there in the middle of the city was the highest hill where the tent or the tabernacle there of meeting stood. You likely have seen pictures now of that hill known as the Temple Mount with the golden dome upon it. But there in David's day and was a, a tent. The tabernacle that had moved with God's people in their wandering and then occupation of the promised land and now stood there. And within the tent was the Holy of Holies where, where, where only the, the priest could enter in one time and that after a multitude of sacrifices and a following to the T, the Old Testament laws. And so the questions here are really asking for us, who can be in God's presence? Who can meet with the Creator King? The answer is, well, only the Holy can be in the presence of the Holy One. He lets not wickedness or the wicked in His place. And so look how verse 4 answers the question, how it describes who can be in His presence. Well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Essentially, those four things are a simplification of the Mosaic law. Who had gone through all the purification uh, rituals, who had uh, gone through everything, and whose heart uh, and the heart posture was right before the Lord. Only the holy and righteous could come in before the Lord, not idolaters. Now, anyone who is seeking the face of the God of Jacob, not another Genesis reference here, could, could come, but what is it that gains you access? Not your title, not your Israelite ethnicity, but purity, cleanliness, holiness. And what is it that you gain when you are in his presence? Well, that's what verse 5, you receive blessing and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's what you receive. And then verse 6, it ends then with this selah, a pause. A moment of reflection of over what has just been said. And as we do that, reflecting on the statement, answering the question about who can ascend the hill of the Lord, we're left to, uh, to discover that nobody can. Nobody can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand, actually stand in his holy place without being decimated before him. For who can meet this standard in their own sight? In those days, the priests would mediate it through the blood of the sacrifices and following the law, I said, but even that was on shaky ground. And so we read a psalm like this, and in the, in the silence of the Selah, we're presented with a problem. And then anticipate a solution in the remaining verses. For the tension rises, there's a conflict here, there's a problem, and the solution then is found in admitting the king into his domain. 
For even as we're told to ascend the hill in holiness, we realize how impossible that is. And so we admit the king into his domain. See, verse 7, after the silence is like a trumpet blast interrupting the Selah. In the reflection of it, now they're told to, uh, to lift up their heads gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The way up the hill is inaccessible, but throw open the gates Throw wide the doors because the king of glory is descending down the hill. Who is he? Who is this king? The strong, mighty warrior king. Is he the one leading his host, the armies of heaven? This is the king of glory descending in strength and glory. And even that, verse 10, ends in another Selah. Ponder this for a moment then. What conflict does the king of glory come to resolve? It reads here as we would anticipate a conquering warrior king. So what battle, what conflict has he come to fix? We'll follow the flow of thought from the psalm. These aren't disjointed verses or sections. It's King David creating in us an anticipation, teaching Israel to await, to await the arrival of a king. So it's no wonder the Israelites in Jesus' day hoped he would come and overthrow Rome and their occupation of their land. But what did he come to overthrow? Sin, the fact that we are unclean and can't ascend the hill nor stand in his presence. He came to set his people free from sin's enslaving rule. Our hands were filthy with our sin. Our souls desire idols. Our words fall short. Thus we won't receive the blessing and the righteousness from the God of our salvation described. Not we nor any generation who seeks to ascend and be in his presence on their own. No, the king of glory therefore descended so that we could ascend. So that we could ascend the hill and stand in his holy place. See the clean hands and pure heart that we could never gain on our own. That we could never wash our hands enough or wash our souls enough. Jesus accomplished by coming and washing us with his blood. See, verse 4 can only be said ultimately of Jesus in his own strength. Who is the king of glory in a word, in a name? It's Jesus. The one who the writer of Hebrews opens his letter, taking all like these Old Testament hints and seeing the life of Jesus and, and, and distilling it into this incredible verse. Hebrews 1.3, it's on the screen here. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, radiating all the glory, all the perfections of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, all 
the ties, all the things fulfilled in Jesus, even that are hinted at, that are anticipated, that are expected of Psalm 24, now now found in, in Christ. And so for us today, this Christmas, during this season, we admit Christ into his domain, into our lives, throwing open the doors of our schedule, throwing open the the gates of our heart in awe of him. Acknowledging that we are sinners and repenting of our own attempts to get into his presence and acknowledging that no Christ, it is Christ alone who is the creator, priest, warrior, king of glory described in these passages. In these verses, anticipated also by the saints of old. Notice Jesus, who is the creator, priest, warrior, king of glory, who comes through David and the promise made to him about a king and was spoken about often uh, through the prophet Isaiah. As he spoke of a coming king one day. And so we too. Admit him into our lives. We admit him into the domain and the schedule and all the things that are in our life as we anticipate. 